0: Good evening, and tonight, as we begin our second chapter, remember that we always begin studying the Bible with prayer. You should always study the Bible with prayer, otherwise you'll read your own thoughts into it. And I appreciate Pastor Corey having a prayer for us as we started. Tonight, I want to begin by reviewing a little bit, for the sake of those who are new, uh, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews number one is different from the the rest of the letters in the New Testament. Number one, well, number two, it was written we believe by Paul, although that's controversial. It seems like Paul's writing it. Whoever wrote it had to have an in-depth knowledge of not only Christianity but also the Hebrew religion and the history of the people. And Paul is the most likely candidate. Because the author does not identify himself, for a first century or two, they were trying to figure out where to put it when they started putting the Bible together. You know, you don't want to put it at the end of Revelation because that's John writing. You don't want to put it over in the Gospels. What do you, what do, you do with it? And finally they agreed that it seems to be Paul writing it, therefore they tack it on at the end of Paul's writings. So this is the reason why it's located where it's located in the Scriptures. It was probably this debate on when it was written. Some say it may have been written by 60 A.D. Some say it may have been written by 70 A.D., but the most likely date is 64 to 68 In that time range. It had to be written before the fall of the temple. Before the Romans destroyed the temple. Why? We'll see when we get to that chapter. But it mentions in there that the sacrificial system had not yet come to an end. That came to an end when the temple fell. Okay, And that fell in 70 AD. So this is a bit of the background of it. Why did he write it? The book of Hebrews is the most theological book in the New Testament. As we looked at that first chapter, do you agree what I said, that it blew your mind away, all the stuff that's packed in there? As you unpack it, it just opens your mind. By the way, it's interesting that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians back in uh, 586 B.C. And the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D. And both times it was destroyed on the same day of the month. It's called uh, Tishbiav. It was the ninth of Av, the month of Av. Both cases it fell on the same day. And the Jews today, by the way, Tishbev is coming up very soon. Tishbev to the Jews is the saddest day in the year. In the first chapter, what is he doing? He's talking to the Jewish people who were discouraged. They're being persecuted by the Romans, they're being persecuted by the Jews, and they're ready to quit and give up. They're losing their jobs. They're kicked out of the temple. The relatives are turning on them. And some of them are saying, hey, what's the sense of standing up for Christ? Why not turn around and go back to the old time religion and escape all of this persecution that's going on? So we find that Paul is trying to stem that tide. There's a common word that pops up in this book, and it's the word better. And he says, we've got a better covenant, we've got a better promise, we've got a better priesthood, we've got a better priest, we've got a better everything. Why do you want to go back to the old one? Because, don't forget, that old system was going to soon be destroyed by the Romans, you see. He saw it coming. He predicted it. And these people wanted to go back. How would you like to go back into a house, move into a house knowing that in a couple days it's going to burn down and you're going to lose everything. And so he's trying to keep them from backsliding and going into apostasy. Now in the first chapter, he talks about how God spoke to them through their forefathers. And the first chapter, he talks to them about how God spoke to them through the prophets, and they did listen to them. So in recent times, he now speaks to them through the Son. And that the Son comes to bring them not only a knowledge of the character of God, but to actually make reconciliation for them. And to bring them to a higher estate. The first chapter deals with the divinity of Christ, showing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And a lot of people question the Trinity. First off, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Okay, just like the word millennium doesn't appear in the Bible. It's called a thousand years. Uh, The Trinity doesn't appear as a word in the Bible. But yet, when you look at the Scriptures and you look at what he's talking about, you can see the triune nature of God. And there's a few other things I could bring out on that uh, when I come to it. So that's the the emphasis of chapter 1. Chapter 2, now chapter 1 talked mainly about the divinity of Christ. But now in chapter 2, he starts talking about the humanity of Christ. And how Christ's humanity is superior and as we look at this I want you to know that my slides are with the old King James okay because that's the only one I had available on slides but I have given you a photocopy of the new King James I prefer to use the new King James so if you hear me saying something that's worded a little bit different than what you see on the board is because I'm using the New King James. I mentioned to you before that chapter 2 would continue on with what he's talking about, Christ and his, his uh, divinity, but now he moves into Christ's humanity. If you've got chapter 2 before you, look at the New King James. The text is a little bit different here. This is chapter 2, verse 1. First word we begin with is therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you know that 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 chapter is connected to what came before. I mean, if you're having a conversation and I walk up to you and I say, John, therefore we ought to do this. You're going to say, wow. Therefore, you haven't given me the reasons why I should do this, and you're coming to a conclusion. The word therefore leads you to a conclusion. What is the conclusion? He had been talking in the verses just before. He was talking about in verse 14 of chapter 1. It says, Are they not all ministering angels sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, you see, so the tail, I mean, the beginning of chapter 2 is really the tail end of chapter 1. got to remember that chapters and verses are not in the original text. They were put in later on by scholars. So they divided it where they thought was a logical place to divide it. But if you look, it says, therefore... And you can read it from there. I'm going to read it from here. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we, what? Drift away. Lest we drift away. What does that mean? It means that it's easy. If you're not diligent in your spiritual life, you're going to start slipping. We would today call it backsliding. Okay? Uh, I remember we used to go up to uh, the Warren Dunes. Anybody ever been to Warren Dunes? Nice big high sand bank, and we, my kids used to like to run up and down that thing. Well, I'll tell you, I hate walking in sand, especially uphill. For every three steps you take forward, you slide back two. You see. I mean, you may be making progress, but sometimes, if the conditions are right, with every three steps you take forward, you slide back four. So, this is what the word backslider means. It means you're slipping back to ground you just left. Okay? And this is what he's trying to get across to these people. If, If you're not careful in your spiritual life, you're going to start drifting back again. And as I mentioned before, if you're a fisherman and have ever been out on a boat, you may be looking down at the tackle and the bait and you may not even realize that the current underneath you is moving that boat along. And finally, you may think, well, you know, I I put my bait box over here on the dock and I turned to fix these, and where's the bait box? Where's the dock? You drifted away. And the thing is, you weren't even conscious of it. You see, so in our spiritual lives, this is the reason why we need to take time with the Lord every day, so that we don't drift back. And it's just interesting to note that this is the first warning Now, I mentioned to you that the book of Revelation has different warnings in it. As a matter of fact, there are five major warnings. We're going to be touching on these later. It'll elaborate more on them. There are some minor warnings that are tucked in there too. But the first one is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And this is the danger of drifting away. Why? Because of Neglect. Neglecting the word of God. Neglecting prayer. Neglecting to study. Do you ever notice that in your spiritual life, probably the first thing that goes is prayer. And then you figure, oh well, I I can get along and I'm alright. I'm still reading my Bible. But you know when you stop praying, before you know it, you stop reading your scriptures. And then well that's You know, I'll catch up on it. Well, you don't ever really catch up on it because before you know it, your actions are going to start slipping. Your habits are going to start slipping. So this is why this is such an important um, warning that he gives because these people, if they were neglecting to study about Jesus and the new covenant and the promises he has, they had the possibility of slipping back into the old mold. The second one is found in Hebrews 3, 7-18, through 18, and that is the danger of hardening your heart. Now, you better be careful of that, because as we learned in Unfolding Revelation, Unfold Revelation, that a person can harden their hearts, and if you're not careful, when you harden your heart, you can start to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when you, when you grieve the Holy Spirit to a certain point, you start quenching the Holy Spirit so that he doesn't start calling you anymore because he knows nobody's home. You're not going to answer the phone, you see. And you can find yourself drifting away where he doesn't call anymore, and that's called the unpardonable sin. So hardening your heart is simply, I know what you want me to do, Lord, but I'm going to do it my way. Did I do that sermon on expanded metal here? <laughs> but, did you ever see expanded metal? You know what expanded metal is? they diamond shape. Well, expanded metal is really a bunch of V's in the road, forks in the road. Every time you come to a fork in the road, you are forced to make a decision. You either go right or go left. And the Lord says, go right. And you say, no, I'd rather go left. Well, he says, okay, well, we go to the next fork in the road. He says, you know, you can still get on course if you go right. No, I think I'm going to go left. And you go a little bit further, he takes you to the similar fork in the road. He says, go right, and you can come back to the main road. Yeah, but I like the scenery on the left. And you go left. And before long, you're way out of the boonies. And you say, Lord, why did you abandon me? He didn't abandon you. You abandoned him. You see. And it's interesting that the Lord will take you around in circles with your pet sin. Did you ever notice that? Everybody has a pet sin. He'll take you around in a circle with your pet sin. And he'll bring you to a fork in the road. He says, all right, you ready to overcome it? Let's go right. Well, Lord, maybe next time. Let's go left this time. He'll take you around in a circle. He'll bring you back to that same sin until you either overcome it or it overcomes you, you see. And so, basically, this is what he's talking about. Don't harden your heart. Don't say no when God says yes. And then notice dullness of hearing. That means don't turn off your hearing aids to God. Uh, My hearing isn't as good as it was. and I've been thinking about getting some of those things in my ears too. But I'd rather just say, could you speak a little louder please? It's a lot cheaper to say that. (laughs) And I'm Scotch, you realize. But anyway, dullness of hearing is not listening. Not Mm -hmm. listening what God's trying to tell you. Okay, and then danger of drawing back. By the way, dullness of hearing is chapter 5, 11 through 14. Then comes Hebrews 10, 26 to 39, the danger of drawing back. You know, God says, advance, let's go forward. And you say, I don't know, I, I think I'd rather stay back on the safe ground. And what are we doing? We're actually denying... God, his leadership. And then Hebrews 12, 25 through 28, talks about the danger of refusing God. Do you know that God has given each of you a talent and expects you to use it for his glory? And let's say, oh, let's say you're in church and the nominating committee, you've heard of those before, the nominating committee calls up and says, ah, uh, we would like you to teach a class you're a good teacher, you have experience in it, and uh, I think you do a good job at it. Say, yeah, I could do it, but you know, I prefer not to. Why don't you find somebody else? Well, you know what? They called you because they thought you were the best person for the job. Oh, sure, they can find somebody else who may be not as good as you are, but if they've got a willing spirit, the Lord will use them. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself being the one that Losing out. So we need to be careful that we don't deny to God the service that he expects from us. You see, he will give you the strength and the power to do whatever you need to do if you trust him. And so we find that the word pararo, drifting away, actually means slipping away, slipping off course. I remember when they were shooting rockets to the moon for the first time, they mentioned that if they, in their calculations, were only about, oh, what's that, about a half inch off, when that rocket took off, they could actually miss the moon by about a 1,000 miles. Because as you go up, it's like a V. It goes out like that, you see. And so you can slip off course unless you keep checking The compass, which is the Word of God. It also says that we don't ignore. Ignore what? Such great salvation that God has given to us. That's why Jesus came. He came to save us, to redeem us. Redeem means to buy back. He buys back what's his in the first place. There's a story about a little boy who built a nice little boat and... uh, he went down to the lake and he put it in the water, and he uh, you know he was sailing it, but the wind came along and blew it way out of sight. It blew it across the lake. Well, he was discouraged, but about a month or two later, he was walking past a pawn shop, and he looked, and there in the window was a boat just like his, and he looked at it carefully, and it had his initials on it, and he went in and he said to the man. That's my boat. I want it back. The man said, sorry, I paid for it. The only way you're going to get it back is to buy it back. And he said, but that's my boat. He says, I'm sorry. You'll have to buy it back if you want it. So the little boy reached in his pocket and he pulled out some money and he bought back his own boat. It was his twice. His by creation and his by redemption. That's what the word redemption means. To buy back. We are God's property by creation. But we're also his property by redemption. He's got a double claim on us, you see. And this is what God is trying to get across. This great salvation that we have, we are not to ignore. Look what it says in Acts 7.53. It says, Who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. What's it talking about? It's saying that ancient Israel, God through angels, gave Moses the law to write. Now we know the Ten Commandments, he spoke to him directly. But we find that he spoke to him through angels when he was writing the laws of Moses. And those angels were expected to also keep it. Notice in Galatians three nineteen it says, Wherefore then serveth the law? In plain words, what's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. If your kids are playing in the yard, you just look out and smile at them. But when you see them run out into the road, you all of a sudden say, Get out of the road. And you're not to go out of the yard again. Right? You just added a law because they were going over into dangerous territory. And this is what God had to do because they were transgressors violating the principles of God's government. God had to add the law till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The angels actually were helping Moses, guiding Moses in uh, not only his leadership, but also in his writing. And what's it say, the seed? It's talking about until the Redeemer came, the promised son the law of God, the ceremonial law of God. This isn't the Ten Commandments law. This is the ceremonial law of God. It was in effect until the Messiah came and fulfilled it. And then in Hebrews 2, verse 2. Now apparently, there were some individuals who were coming up who were worshiping angels. Angel worship was starting to creep in among some of the people. And we find that Paul has to point out to them that they are created beings just like we are and that Christ is above the angels. Christ is not a created being. He's been from all eternity. Angels are created beings. And notice what it says in the New King James in verse 2. It says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it? He gave us through the prophets. He gave us what the law was. But when Jesus himself spoke it, he confirmed the truthfulness of God's law. And it says here, notice the word steadfastness. If the angels, when they gave this word, it says, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. When the angels of heaven violated God's law, what happened? They got tossed out of heaven, right? Satan and his angels. So God expected obedience of the angels. When the people were in the wilderness, didn't God expect obedience from them? And when they didn't, they died in the wilderness. And he's saying, you know, if God didn't spare the angels when they disobeyed, what makes you think he's going to spare you? But God planned for us to have a way back to him. And that was through the Messiah. Now, I want you to look at something in the New King James. It doesn't show up in the Old King James so much. Look at that second word in verse 2. What is that word? Simple little word. If. Now, it says in the New King James, For if the word spoken through the angels prove steadfast, And every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall it escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to those who heard it. The disciples heard him speak, right? They confirmed when the gospel record, they confirmed that that was right. That was their testimony. Jesus said that. They confirmed the truth of it. And notice in Galatians, it says something very interesting. This is a text you might want to keep in mind. Galatians 1.8. It says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. If anybody preaches to you a gospel that says it's all right to violate the commandments of God, if anyone tries to preach to you that there's some other way to salvation except through Jesus, let him be accursed. In plain words, don't listen to him. There are some people who will come around and knock on your door, and they'll usually have a little black book, and it says, Another gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that they will tell you that this book came from an angel of heaven by the name of Moroni. But yet, when they start telling you that Adam was once a created being like we are who achieved Godhood, and that it was a blessing that Adam and Eve fell, and some of these other teachings is that a little bit different from the gospel we receive as we read the scriptures? Isn't it interesting? I showed this to one of these missionaries that came around, and I said, please read Galatians for me there, Galatians 1.8. And as he was looking at it, he started to read the text out of his own Bible, and it says, And though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And he looked at that and he said, you know, I never saw that text before. He never realized that was in there. And so we find that there are those, the devil is going to preach many ways to get to heaven. But that isn't what the scripture preaches. Look at Hebrews 2, 3 now. How shall we escape if we neglect it's so great a salvation? Now, that qualifying word, if, means that you don't have to neglect your salvation. Right? You have a choice. And this shows that God is predestining us to fall. He can see the future. He knows what you're going to choose, but he doesn't command you to go that way. He gives us an option. He gives us a decision, and God respects our choice. If you want to be lost, God will respect that. But he'll do everything he can to save you. He's already done everything he can do to save you. But he will reach out and try to bring you back again. It says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So it's through Christ that we find the way to salvation. And the apostles confirmed what he said. The word if is a conditional word. You know, there are unconditional promises and there are conditional promises in the Bible. And when you read the scriptures, you want to look carefully. What is he saying? Is this conditional or unconditional? And what is the condition? The condition is my obedience. You know, I mean, if, if your boss says, well, look, um, you show up at work at 8 o'clock, if you don't, we're going to give you the privilege of working for somebody else. Right? Now, he didn't He didn't force you. He just says, show up at 8 or we'll give you the blessing of working for our competitors. Plain words, you're fired. You say, he's telling you what the circumstances are, but it's your choice whether you show up at 8 o'clock or don't get the job, you see. And so this is what God is saying. Now in Hebrews two four, it says, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Notice, God gives gifts to whomever he wishes. Some people, you know, are called to the uh, teachers some preachers some uh, are good in ministering to people's health and healing and so god gives different gifts according to his needs do you realize that god gives to the uh, gives gifts to the church when it needs it if you have if you have a church that maybe doesn't have a pianist. God will, if you pray about it, God will send you a pianist. You see, God meets the needs. Now, there are some people who think that they have gifts that they don't. I keep telling our pastor in Saginaw that I am highly offended that no one has asked me to play the piano for church. Course, if you ever heard me play the piano, you would say that the Lord was leading them in that decision. You see, I remember I gave a spiritual gifts inventory to a lady in a church elsewhere, and she checked off that she had every one of the spiritual gifts. Well, as I looked at it, I thought to myself, this one she missed the gift of delusion, right? We need to be careful that we don't self-deceive. What are the gifts of the Spirit? First off, the gifts of the Spirit is not something you learn. It's God gives it as a gift. And notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 8-10 uh, through 10 and 28. It says, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Did you ever run across a person who has the gift of wisdom? When I was in Maine, I remember there was one one of the elders in our church. He never got out of, well, I guess he got out of sixth grade. But he didn't have an education. He didn't have a bunch of letters behind his name. But whenever we were talking about a problem in the church or something, invariably we would turn and say, Brother, what do you think? He would stop and he would say, well, he says, the scripture says, and boom, he'd nail it right down. We'd know which way to go. That's the gift of wisdom. By the way, he's the only one that I ever met up until my son Randy, who is working his way through. He's the only one I ever met at that time who read the complete Bible commentary, SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 1 all the way through the volumes to the very end. And you could tell, because he knew his Bible, he knew what it meant. And so we find that the gift of wisdom is independent of education. Now, I know I I have run into a lot of, how shall I say this, educational fools, Am I being unkind? Uh, there are some people who are very well educated who will do dumb things, and yet there are some people who are not well educated, but yet they know exactly the way to go. Isn't it a wonderful thing when they you can merge both education and wisdom? This is what God is saying. And notice it says, to another, the word of knowledge. You can ask them anything. They're a walking encyclopedia. They can tell you what it says. By the same spirit, to another, faith. My daughter, Wendy, has the gift of faith. I mean, when there's a problem, she immediately says, well, I've been praying about it, and I believe that the Lord is going to answer my prayer, and we're going to go in this direction. And you know what? The Lord's come through for her. And uh, more than once, I've seen that type of situation. To another, the gifts of healing. Those of you who are in the medical profession, you may have, actually, the gift of healing. To another, working miracles. We don't see that too often. But yet, the gift is there when it's needed, you see. Especially in the mission field, this happens quite frequently. Here in the United States, we have other options. We may not need it as much. To another, the gift of prophecy. There are those who say, "Well, all the prophets were in the past, and they're not; uh, they're no longer around." Well, if that's the case, you're also saying we no longer have knowledge. We also no longer have wisdom. We no longer have healing. Well, if those gifts are here, why shouldn't this gift be in God, among God's people, in the last day? to another discerning of spirits. A lot of times the devil will come along talking with milk and honey. And yet, there are some people who say, you know, that just doesn't sound right. That just doesn't sound in harmony with the Word of God. And they can discern the spirit, the attitude, whether or not a person is doing it out of pride. Look at another, it says, And another, Diverse Kinds of Tongues. Now, Diverse Kinds of Tongues. The Bible does teach the gift of tongues. But it wasn't gibberish. They were known tongues, but they just didn't happen to know them. Uh, You know, like I said before, I'm Scotch-Irish, but I don't know Gaelic. You see. And if I went over there and I had to speak to a Gaelic uh, group of people, and all of a sudden I start speaking, and all of a sudden they hear me in Gaelic. You know that that didn't come from me. That would be a gift that God gives us, and others' interpretation of tongues. Maybe somebody's talking in known language, and uh, maybe in Dutch. You know, and all of a sudden he, he can hear, uh, he can understand what you're talking about. So these are spiritual gifts. And God hath set some in the, tr- uh, in the church. Notice what he says. First, apostles. They're the, what we would call church planters today. Secondly, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After them, miracles. Then, the gift of healing. Helps. Now, helps. The gift of helps. Did you know that was a spiritual gift? No, a spiritual gift. You got your nominating committee going. You want to find out who in your church has the gift of helps, because they make the best deacons and deaconesses. You see, they know how to help people. There's some people who can stand up front and preach, but they won't. They won't. Don't know how to help anybody, but they know how to bring in the firewood and how to fix somebody's car and so forth. These are the gift of helps. They help move the uh, program along. The gift of governments, we would call this administration. Okay? And diversities of tongues. Now, there are those today who say, well, if you can't speak in tongues, you're a second-rate Christian. But notice, it comes at the tail end of a long list of gifts. And God says that he will give these as they are needed. Look at Ephesians 4, which also refers to it. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Why did God give these? He gave them to encourage the saints to a higher higher goal. And to help them for the work of the ministry. Actually, take that comma out of there. And it says, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. Do You know you're called to be ministers, every one of you? You all have your own mission fields. And God calls you to perfect it for that. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Edifying is correcting... uh, making sure that it's it uh, reads properly. Look at Hebrews 2, 5. And it says, For unto the angels ha, uh, hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. He's saying, For unto the angels he hath not, I'm sorry, I left the word not out of there. He, he didn't put the world to come in the hands of the angels. As a matter of fact, he didn't put the plan of salvation in the hands of the angels. He came down himself, and he wants humans to reach humans. Sometimes angels have to do some of the the work too. But still, we have a part in the plan of salvation. Now, so what is this whole section talking about? Verses 5 through 18 are speaking of this theme. What is the theme? that Christ is superior because of his humanity. He was both fully God, but he was 100% fully man at the same time. You see, and as we look in chapter 1, it spoke of Christ being superior because of his his divinity. Here, it speaks about him being superior because of his humanity. Why? Because Christ took on our fallen human flesh after thousands of years of practicing sin. But yet he didn't take on our sinfulness. In plain words, he may have taken on all the, uh, you know, uh, he was subject to temptations like we are. But we choose to fall. We choose to give in. He didn't. You know, have you ever noticed that that last piece of chocolate cake? You you walk past it and you say, well, I really shouldn't. But when you, hmm, you walk back and you say, oh, it's still there. Hmm. Well, I really shouldn't. It's not good for me. And besides, you know, I got to lose some of that. And uh, you look by and you say, hmm, well, I wonder what the frosting is like Well, nobody will know if I just take a little piece off, start nibbling on it. And you know, did you ever notice that chocolate cake has a way of jumping off of that plate (laughs) and into your mouth when you're not even aware of it? I don't know. must be something about it. You see, we give in. if you didn't like to sin, you'd stop doing it. You see, sin is enjoyable. If it wasn't, why do we do it? Reminds me of the guy who used to bat his head against a brick wall. And they said, why do you keep hitting your head against the brick wall? He says, it's because it feels so good when I stop. You know? We uh, we must be getting some pleasure out of sin or we wouldn't do it. And notice that God sent his son to take on our human flesh, but he did not accept he did not accept the responsibility for... Uh, should I should. I don't like the word responsibility. He did not take on giving in to sin. Notice what it says in verses 2, 5 through 6. There it says that the kingdom is not given to angels. He didn't give the eternal life and, and the new earth to angels... He gave those to human beings through Christ. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, he not only bought back the people, he also bought back the planet and all the creatures in it. And this is the reason why he says that if we go around destroying his creation, he's going to hold us accountable for it. The scripture tells us that the Son of Man was made lower than the angels. He came down to take on human flesh which is below the status of angels. I mean, angels are stronger than we are. They're smarter than we are. They're faster than we are. Um, They live forever. We don't. You see? They are above us. They are ministers of God to people. But, what happened? Christ, who was the commander-in-chief over them, he comes down below the angels and he takes on our humanity. He takes on our humanity for several reasons. Number one, divinity can't die, but humanity can. And he had to take on a human body so that his human body could die on that cross. You see, he had to crucify our flesh collectively through him. Also, we find that he did it for another purpose. Why did he go through all those beatings and everything that he had? Why did he have to go through all the suffering and the temptation? So that he could understand what you're going through. You see, when his friend Lazarus died... He grieved. Those of you who have lost a loved one, you know the grief you went through or are going through. He went through that. Even the Father went through it. A lot of times we say, you know, the Father's up there and Jesus is suffering down here. Don't kid yourself. The Father was feeling every nail that Jesus felt. He felt every, every pain that Jesus experienced. They were working together. And so he took on this human flesh. Why? Because when he was resurrected, he was going to go back to heaven and he's taking his human flesh with him. He's taking your flesh back to heaven with him. That's why you can't find his body today. And what does he do? He now, because of his suffering... He can understand humans better. He can experience and understand what you go through. And therefore, he now becomes our high priest with God. He can explain things to God in a different way. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, three. It says, we will be above the angels in Christ. And look what it says, verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? That's not only the bad angels, obviously. We're, Lucifer and his his crew, they're going to be judged. We're going to have a part in determining or reviewing the records and on his judgment of his fate. But also, the good angels, in a sense, they haven't done anything wrong but we will help to administer to angels. Okay? How much more things that pertain to this life, if we're going to be judging angels, shouldn't we be living in a manner whereby we are living within the commandments and be obedient to God here? Look at Hebrews two six. But one in a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of Man that thou visitest him? What is he saying here, and who's saying it? Who said that? Remember? Old Testament. All right. This is coming from Psalms 8. David is speaking, and he here asks the question. Well, mainly, I want you to concentrate on verses 3 through 6. But it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Then he goes on to say, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? That God would come down here? That God would think about us? And then he goes on to say, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Okay, and then verse 6. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Adam was given the dominion of the earth. But you know what? He was the governor of the earth. But he sold it to Satan. That's why Satan's called the god of this world. You see. That's why those who choose to obey him, are part of his kingdom. But Christ came down to give an option to those who want to break free from Satan and his rule. And it says, All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas." O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This is a beautiful world. But you know what, it's nothing compared to the world that's coming. When he makes everything new, it's going to be fantastic. And so we find that Christ took on humanity so that he could defeat the devil. As a matter of fact, Christ took on humanity so that he could go into the grave. Did you realize that Christ was born to die? He was actually born to die. That's the only way he could buy back the price that the law demanded. The penalty for sin is what? And it's either your death or his death. And he says, I will substitute for you on the cross. When a person goes into court, they have a lawyer there. And the lawyer is their substitute, their mouthpiece to speak for them. Now, you can go into court by yourself and choose not to have a lawyer. You can choose to defend yourself, but you don't know all the ins and outs of the law. And you may end up finding yourself in worse shape than you began, right? This is why we need an advocate. The Scripture calls Christ our advocate. What does that mean? He's our lawyer. That's what it means. He's our lawyer in the judgment. And it says, He came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All is put under Christ's dominion. And notice it says, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowned him with glory and honor and hast set him over the works of thy hand. God has given all dominion to Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 27 says, For he must reign till he hath put all the enemies under his feet. Now, do we see all of God's enemies under his feet yet? So Christ will eventually defeat the devil. He took on human flesh so that he could die and that worried the devil. The devil blew it. He hated Christ so much that he wanted him dead. But that's the worst thing he could have done. Because in so doing, he shot himself in the foot. Because once he got Christ in the grave, what's he going to do about it? How's he going to keep him down there? Because the Scriptures said he would not stay in that grave. Why do you think they stationed all those Roman soldiers around the tomb? I bet they were sitting on the grave trying to keep them from coming out. But you know what? An angel of God came down. One angel. They all fell as though they're dead. And Christ came out of that tomb. And when he came out of that tomb, he broke the strongest tool that the devil has. The strongest thing, the, the thing that can hurt you the most is to kill you. What can you do after that? Right? And When he did that, the God of death knew that his goose was cooked. I mentioned once before that the devil was cast down three times. Did I mention that in this or the other seminar? I think it was the other seminar. The devil was cast down three times. First time, he was cast out of heaven down to earth, right? Second time, he's cast down at the cross. Because when Jesus died, he knew that his fate was sealed. That he was no longer the governor of this earth. Because Jesus, the penalty for sin is death, the way you redeem somebody is to pay the price. And he bought the boat back, he bought the human race and the the whole globe back again. And so it belongs to him. That's why, you know, the devil when he tried to sell Jesus the earth, remember when he was tempting him, you know, bow down to me and I'll give you all this. He was given stolen goods. It already belonged to Jesus. If it's his already, big deal. you know? No wonder Jesus didn't fall for it. But you see here, through Jesus, God is defeating the devil. And now he no longer has access to the councils of heaven. Remember in Job, he'd appear in the council of heaven. He no longer had access to that because Christ is now the representative from planet Earth. And what's the third time? The third time is when he comes back again to claim his house. You know, when you buy a house... You know you sign the deed and everything and fork up the finances to the bank, but you may have a clause in there that says, "Well, yeah, but you can't move in until the people move out, right So what is he? he at the cross he bought back the property, and he says, "I'm coming back to evict Satan." and the property I am taking possession of. No wonder the devil's so angry. He's going around kicking holes in the walls. He's breaking all the windows he can, because if I can have it, nobody can have it. And the thing he wants to break the most is God's people. He wants to destroy them. No wonder he's persecuting them. Notice what it says. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he accepted, which did put all things under him. How's the New King James translate that, verse 27? Let me look at that a second. I don't have 1 Corinthians in the New King James. I'd have to turn to it. But basically, it's saying that God has put everything under his dominion and that he's going to take possession of it. Look at Hebrews 2 8. It says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under his feet, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In plain words, everything is put in his hands, but at the end is when it all comes to fulfillment. Like he takes over the house, you see. Satan is still living in the house at the present time. But he's going to be evicted. Look at Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now notice that. Why was Jesus put lower than the angels so that Jesus could die? The angels can't die unless God destroys them in the Gehenna fire. But the angels can't die But he says Christ could die. Why? So that he would be elevated and receive a crown of glory and honor far different than any king ever had. That he may, by the grace of God, he should taste death for every man. This is called substitution. He became your substitute. Why? That he may bring many sons to glory. He may bring many people to salvation. He may bring back and buy back many people. We are the children of Christ. Actually, he's our elder brother because he has the human flesh that we have. But our spiritual children to him. And look at verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things In bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now doesn't that sound a little strange to you? Perfect through suffering? How can you perfect a perfect God? You see? How can you perfect a perfect God? God the Father is divine. The Holy Spirit is divine. We are human And even though God knows our mind, He knows our heart and everything, it is only Christ who went through that human experience. He experienced hunger. He experienced grief. He experienced pain and suffering. He experienced being rejected and having everybody turn against Him. He knows what you go through. And because of this, He can better explain it in the judgment. Don't forget in the judgment, it's not just God and the angels who are looking in on this, but I don't know what beings are out there. I'm sure they're they're probably not little green men, but out there somewhere, we have reason to believe that there are other inhabited worlds. The Bible doesn't say so, but it leads you to believe that when you look at the book of Job, you see. But these are unfallen worlds, you see, how could an Adam on planet Zeus somewhere, how could that Adam who has never fallen understand what it's like to be a fallen human being? Because he hasn't fallen. You see. And so we see that there's a lot who are looking in on this judgment. And Christ is able to explain this. He is perfected through suffering. Notice what it says in Colossians 1.16. For by him were all things created. Now catch that. Him, in this case, it's referring to Christ. Through Christ, he was the active agent in creating all things. Like I said before, he was the contractor in creating all things that were in the mind of God. And it says that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Now, this table is visible, right? You all can see it? But I'm told, and David, you're a scientist, I'm told that this thing is made up of molecules and atoms. Is that correct to assume? What's an atom look like? How many of you have seen an atom? And I don't mean a, a man named Adam, you know, with an O-M. Have you ever seen an atom? This thing that is visible is made from things invisible. Explain that. You know, this electricity runs these lights, and it runs that projector, and it makes a nice picture on the wall. But what is electricity? Oh, yeah, it's a bunch of electrons running around. Yeah, but what are a bunch of electrons? Did you ever see one? We don't know what they are, but we can see what they do, you see. And God says the things invisible and visible. God made them all. He made the largest of the stars and the smallest of the atoms. And notice what it says. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. He's the one that sets up leaders and takes leaders down. Look at Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 and it says, Though he were a son, yet Learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Even little Prince Georgie. You know, if he gets out of line, I don't know if they let him spank him or not, but if he gets out of line, they may have to say, now take your hands off the stove. You see? They learn to obey by correcting them. And God says he corrects those whom he loves. I chasten those whom I love. I know my son Randy. One time he got himself in trouble, which was not unusual. And I, uh, well, let me just say, I had to get to the seat of the problem. Okay? And I said to him, son, I want you to know that I spank you because I love you. He looked at me He said, well, I hate to see what you 'd do if you hated me. <laughs> you know God spanks us because He loves us so we won 't grow up to be spoiled brats We're running all over the place. You know a puppy dog, if it's little puppy dog and you just train it not to go off the property, you can let it off the leash because it knows not to go off the property. But if you chain up a dog and you leave that dog chained up all its life, it gets off the leash. It's in everybody's yard. It's in the garbage. It's down the street. It's bringing home all kinds of stuff. Why? Because it's never learned the boundaries. Same thing with kids, by the way. Same thing with adults, by the way. And so we say that God trains, he teaches, he rebukes those whom he loves. And so... What is this doing? Sometimes you have to learn obedience through suffering. You know? No TV for a week. Well, that wouldn't bother. I'll take your phone away for a week. That'll bother most of them. Okay? And why? It's being to make them perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey him. Chapter 7, verse 28 says, For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forever. What is this saying? It's saying men who are subject to aches and pains and death. They become priests. But now we have a better priest, a priest who is actually the Son of God and who died once, but he'll never die again. He'll be our priest for all eternity. Therefore, we don't need the earthly priesthood. We have a heavenly priesthood. As a matter of fact, we are the priesthood of believers, but Christ is the high priest. We are to you know, pray for people and encourage them That's our priestly responsibility. But only he can intercede and make vindication in the law before us. Look at Hebrews 2.11, it says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In plain words, he's the one The word sanctified means holy. We get the word sanctuary from it. All right. He's the one that sanctifies us, makes us holy, makes us right, makes us dedicated. But he himself is dedicated. Therefore, he considers himself our elder brother, one with us of the flesh. Look at Hebrews two twelve. It's saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He's willing to acknowledge you. God is willing to acknowledge you, not only as his son or daughter, but as your brother or sister. You see, he's willing to acknowledge you. He's not ashamed to be related to you. Isn't that tremendous? I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good. To know that God's not ashamed to be related to me. Have you got any relatives you kind of, well, we don't talk about that relative. We're kind of ashamed of that part of the family. He doesn't do that. And you know what? The greatest of the sinners were the ones that he was the happiest about. Look at Mary Magdalene and some of the others. Look at Peter. Peter had a few flaws too. He was pleased to be able to talk about them. And no matter how bad your sins are, God's delighted to call you a relative. Notice in Psalm 22, 22, a good one to remember. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. I will tell other people. And I should not be ashamed of Christ and be willing to tell other people about him and praise his name in the congregation. Look at 2 Samuel 22, 3. It says, The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. He's the one that will save us from the destruction at the end of the world. And notice, he says, he's the rock. Now, I realize that there are some people who call them the rock and try to say that Peter was the rock upon which the church was built. No, it was Christ who was the rock upon which the church was built. That term rock, every time you see it, and you find that especially in the Psalms, every time you see the word rock, when it's not talking about that hard thing out in your garden, every time it uses that word rock, it uses it in reference to divinity and salvation. A savior a redeemer. You look at it, go through the Psalms, pick out the word rock. It always picks out a divine person. The word for Peter meant a pebble, a rolling stone. But the word he uses to speak of Christ is one of those hard things out in the garden. He's the rock upon which the church is built. And so we find that because he's the rock of our salvation, we can trust in him. Look at Isaiah eight, seventeen, and 18. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Look at verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel. From the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Mount Zion Represents the kingdom of God, the, uh, the throne of God. Look at Hebrews 2.13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. God has called us to be sons and daughters of God. You may think you're a miserable sinner. Well, you're right. Okay? We'll get that behind us. We're all miserable sinners. But you know what? When you give your heart to the Lord, you become sons and daughters of God. Isn't that cool? You become prince and princesses in the kingdom of God. You will have authority over angels. You will have a part in the administration of God. And this is what Jesus wants for his children. You are somebody. Don't let somebody put you down. Well, you, you're one of those Christians. Yeah, I am. Okay? I'm proud of it. Well, I shouldn't be proud, you know. But i mean a good kind of pride. There's a good kind of pride and a bad kind of pride. But I'm thankful. I'm glad that you noticed. You know, if they don't know you're a Christian, maybe your face didn't tell them that. You know some Christians that go around with a long face, look like cows. You know? And that isn't what God called us to be. God has called us to be effervescent Christians. I um in my wicked ways. I remember I when I was in high school, I had a friend who wanted a coke. Well, I said, sure. I took it, I Shook it all up. Then I gave it to him. What happened? He opened that can and... God wants us to be effervescent Christians. You can't keep it in. When you have an experience with Jesus, people know it. You can't help it. It bubbles out of you. This is what he wants us to be. Because he loves us, he wants us to love him back. Look at Colossians 2.15. It says in reference to Hebrews 2.17 and by the way, Hebrews 2.17 is the first place in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, where Christ is referred to as a high priest. This is where it first appears. That's why I said that the book of Hebrews is a connecting link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because now that he's established that Christ had a better divinity and a better humanity and he died so that he could understand us. Why? So that he could be the high priest in a better tabernacle. You see? There's a logic and a sequence behind what he's building in this book. And it says, Jesus' death broke the devil's power. The chapter speaks of his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection. His death opened the way for his high priesthood. Jesus was resurrected to go to heaven to be high priest. He had a new job description. That's why at the cross, he said, it is finished. What is finished? Not the plan of salvation. What was finished? Him being the lamb that would die. You see? When he came into the world, he came in to die as the lamb. But now, that's finished, he moves to another job, that of the high priest. And it's interesting that later on, when he's done with that, it will say, it is finished. You see? The blood that he shed on that cross, he now takes to heaven to apply in your behalf. Figuratively speaking. As we look at this, look what it says in verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, that's Satan and all of his cohorts who put him to death, Jesus to death, he made a show of them openly. He showed that the devil was defeated, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I, Hebrews 2.15 says, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, when we live in sin, we may not openly admit it, but people who live in sin are in constant fear of death. Because when you die, what comes next? The judgment you got to give account. You know, right now, I'm preparing for next April 15th. I live from April 15th to April 15th. You know, right now, believe it or not, right now at home, I'm gathering all my receipts together for, you know, the phone bill, the electric bill and everything. I'm gathering them together in preparation for April 15th, because April 16th, I don't want somebody rapping at my door and saying, where's the money you owe me, you see. And because of my fear of the tax collector, I'm getting ready now. And a person who's living in sin, knowing that a judgment is coming, what manner of men and women ought we to be? And if we are living in harmony with the will of God, we can't wait for Jesus to come. We can't wait for the judgment. Because the judgment is a good thing. If you're accused of robbing a bank and you have proof that you were in Florida at a public beach and a thousand people saw you out there swimming, you'd say, hey, come on, let's go to court. I can't wait to get there. And the judge will look at the evidence and say, you don't have a case against this guy. Stop wasting my time. Get out of here. And it throws the case out. But if you don't have an alibi, and you really did do it, you want to keep as far from that court as possible, right? And this is basically what he is telling us. As we look further, we are in the bondage of sin, and he wants to deliver us. Look at Isaiah forty-two seven. He opened the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. There are many people today who are in the prison house of the grave. Jesus, when he comes back, will bring them out of that prison house and the devil can't keep them in it. Jesus was the down payment on the great resurrection that's to come. That's why he was, he was the first fruit out of the grave. Because there's more to come after that. And he was, you know, when you buy a house, you got to put a down payment on. When you put a down payment on your house, Marilyn, didn't that indicate, maybe you put a $1,000 down, didn't that indicate that the rest of it would follow? If it didn't, then you might be in trouble. Okay? But Jesus was the down payment on the resurrection that would follow, and there would be a lot more that would come up with it. And so we find that this is what he's promising us as a part of his salvation. Isaiah 49.9, it says, That thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, Show yourself. They shall feed in the ways, and their pasture shall be in all high places. God not only wants to free you in the the, uh, end times, He wants to free you now from sin. He wants to help you to overcome sin. He's not going to excuse your sin. He's going to help you to overcome the sin. Look at Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why? Because the Lord hath anointed me. That means He made Him the Christ, the Messiah. He has anointed me. To preach the good news unto the meek. Now what does it say about the meek? The meek shall inherit the earth. It doesn't mean this old rusty planet. It means the meek will inherit the beautiful new earth. And meek does not mean weak. Meek means humble. Okay? The humble will inherit the kingdom of God. He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He wants to open the prison house that's holding you right now. Uh, Luke 1, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Hebrews 2:16 says, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faithful. If we are faithful, we are children of Abraham. And he we become part of that seed. Look at Hebrews 2.17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is why Jesus became human. This is the reason why Jesus suffered and died. So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in our behalf. In Hebrews 2.17 I mentioned that the first place or it mentions his high priesthood. Look at Philippians 2, 7. It says, But he made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Hebrews four fifteen says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Now, does that mean that Jesus shot cocaine? Or that Jesus um, took LSD so that he could be like us? You've got to realize that sin comes in categories. And Jesus addressed every category of sin. A person who's addicted to one thing, when I've done Stop Smoking seminars, one thing you've got to remember, and I think I talked about this in the last seminar, is... If you are addicted to nicotine, you are probably also addicted to caffeine. And there are some people who add to it morphine. And a person who's really into smoking and into drinking coffee, they're probably into Mountain Dew, Pepsi, and other caffeine drinks. And it's very possible they're into the red meats because it has purine in it purine, caffeine, nicotine, morphine. They're all sister drugs. When you say, oh yeah, I cut down from 10 packs a day down to one pack a day. My first question is, how much did your coffee increase? How much more pop are you drinking? You didn't get rid of one, you just swapped. You switched, you see. And why? Because they're all categorized together under the E drugs. And this is the way it is with sin. Under appetite. You can have a variety of appetites. Some people have an appetite for food. Others for alcohol. Others for sex. Others for narcotics. You see. But Jesus overcame them so that we do not have an excuse. But look at Hebrews 2.18. And here it says, For in that he himself have suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. Catch that. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. You see? When you're going through that checkout counter and you're passing by, you know, getting your money ready to check out, And you just have to glance up and there's one of these girly magazines over there. Your eyes caught it. Well, you turned around and you went on. That was a temptation. That wasn't a sin. But when you go through and you look up and you see the girly magazine, then you take a double take, then a triple take, and then you go over and take and start thumbing through it, that's giving in to the sin, you see. The devil can tempt you but you still have the choice whether or not you're going to give in. We can't say the devil made me do it. The devil didn't. You're bad enough. You don't need the devil to make you give in. Right? You can do it on your own. Okay. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like. And that's why we can boldly come before his throne of grace. And so, my friends, tonight, what do we learn? Number one, that the divine Christ condescended to become incarnate and to take on human flesh so he could die. Number two, his suffering and death perfected his understanding to become our high priest. Number three, because of his death, he is exalted above the angels and he retains that human form. Thus, We are exalted with him. We who are below the angels will soon be above the angels. And as we enter chapter 3, we'll discover that Jesus is also superior to Moses and his work. And there's also another warning we'll hit there. Time for your quiz, real quick. Okay, you have an envelope there on your desk. Quickly fill these in. I'm already over. Question number one, therefore, indicates that chapter two, verse one, is a part of chapter one, true or false, don't tell me, just choose the correct answer, okay? Question number two, chapter two, verse one, is the first of how many major warnings in Hebrew? I want a number, okay? Number three, chapter two, verse one, cautions against. What was the first warning against? I'll give you your choice of two different ways of phrasing it. Question 4, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, tell the superiority of Christ's divinity, true or false? Chapter 2 speaks of the superiority of Christ's divinity, true or false? Question number 5, in verses 2, 1 through 3, what conditional word is used? And then the bonus one. In chapter 2, Jesus is first mentioned as what? He, what position is he first mentioned as? Okay. Got them all? Scratch your head a little bit and finish them up. Okay. Here's the answers. The answers. Therefore, indicates that chapter 2, verse 1, is a part of chapter 1, true. It's connected to it. Question number 2. 2, chapter 2, verse 1, is the first of five major warnings in the book. Question 3. Chapter 2, verse 1, cautions against drifting away or neglecting salvation. You could have either one. Question number four. It tells of the superiority of Christ's divinity. No, that was chapter one. Chapter two tells about the superiority of his humanity. Okay? And then, question number five, verses one through three, it has the conditional word, if. Okay? And then the bonus question, Jesus is first mentioned in 2.17 as our high priest. Homework assignment, reread chapter 2, read ahead to chapter 3, and invite somebody else to come join us next week. Okay? Lord bless you, and the pastor will dismiss us with prayer.